What happens when you get some of the most senior leaders we have to share his or her advice on a one-on-one -on -one basis? I'm Michael Sears. I used to brief flag officers as part of my job. Now the tables are turned, and we're letting some of the most senior naval, military, and civilian leaders we have brief us. Welcome to the Flag Brief. Stay with us. I'm in conversation with Admiral Mike Mullen, United States Navy retired, and of course, the former CNO and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Admiral Mullen, welcome. Thanks. It's good to be with you, Michael. It's great to have you here, and I'm going to jump right into this thing because I think one of the key things we can, we can focus on is the future of the Navy, and we've had some some bumps in the road or, or rough water is probably a much more appropriate uh, way to say this over the last couple of years. Uh, and, and I wonder if you can tell me your thoughts on the responsibility of junior officers, midshipmen and, and young folk who have just graduated, just commissioned, uh, what their responsibility is to the future of the Navy. So a, a couple of thoughts, uh, Michael. One is we have had a rough time lately. Um, uh, we've had a major scandal at the very senior level uh, called uh, Fat Leonard, which dealt with uh, challenges of uh, you know corruption and dishonesty and and uh, all sorts of behavior at the officer level, senior officer level. And by senior, I mean sort of commander, captain. Uh, and, and flag officer. Uh, and actually, it's instructive to me that uh, that, lasts, that lasted a, over a 10-year period. It also uh, was an investigation that was undertaken by the FBI. And when the Justice Department takes away your ability to investigate yourself, you really, uh, you really lose an awful lot of uh, situational awareness about where are you, what's the impact, uh, uh, both both near term and long term, and we lost a lot of leaders in our flag community uh, as a result of that. But that all backs down, quite frankly, to, uh, to to the rest of the Navy, to the Navy's reputation, to um, to moms and dads throughout the country that have their daughters and sons uh, enlisted in the Navy, and they're being led by naval officers. Uh, uh, you know, and they wonder when you see the kind of uh, incidents that we've had. We've we've had the you know the tragedy of these two ships, uh, which collided and killed 17 sailors. We've had a very visible uh, issue in the case of uh, a SEAL chief by the name of Gallagher, where the president got involved. Uh, and then just very recently, uh, you know, we had the the uh, the issue with the uh, commanding officer of the Theodore Roosevelt, as well as uh, the Bonhomme Richard, which had a major fire where it's still not determined whether we're going to be able to save that ship. So that's really rough waters. And there are a lot of people in America wondering about our Navy who normally don't have much concern. Uh, so how does that impact me as a brand new, uh, newly commissioned officer uh, in the Navy? And, and, and first of all, I, I'm generally speaking, as that newly commissioned officer, I'm aware of that. Secondly, I'm wondering what the Navy leadership uh, is doing, and hopefully the Navy leadership is communicating enough uh, to give me some idea. And then how can I help? 
and the answer to helping, this isn't the first time, certainly over the course of my life, where the Navy has been in rough waters. In the early 90s, uh, the tailhook scandal uh, really derailed the Navy in many, many ways. Uh, and it took us it took us a decade plus to recover. And I would argue it's going to take us uh, certainly that long to recover um, uh, from this combination of scandals uh, and challenges. Uh, and at a time where our leadership, our, our flag leadership has been reduced just in terms of the bench because of the Fat Leonard crisis. So the leadership, the, the CNO, Admiral Gilday, has a huge challenge on his hand and he knows that. How can you help the Navy the best? How can you help the institution that we care about the best? Uh, the, the simple answer is to do your job as best you possibly can. So, Admiral, let me let me ask you this. Are we running so hard as a Navy, as a naval service? And, and quite frankly, you know, we're a very small part of the people of the United States. Was there a sense in your in your opinion of some kind of privilege? Is that why we might have gotten off the ethical uh, straight and narrow? You know, based on my experience, you know, one point in time in my career in the early 80s, I was stationed in the Philippines, but I spent a lot of time out in the Western Pacific. Uh, and it's a long way from the flagpole in Washington. And so one of those metrics that I always, you know, kept in my head throughout my career, you know, the longer you were, the, the further the distance from the flagpole, the, the more the challenge to keep everybody in line. And in the Western Pacific in particular, uh, there's a, there can be a systemic issue along the lines of the Fat Leonard kinds of things. One is because I'm not going back to D.C. or back to the mainland very often. Uh, and, and two, I just stay there for multiple tours. And I felt for a long time that you can't stay out there very long. Uh, there's too much temptation, too many opportunities, and not enough supervision. Uh, and I think that's been true, actually, the, over the course of my career from the 60s uh, through current times. And Fat Leonard uh, took advantage of that, if you will. Uh, and that was a cultural issue, uh, per se. And that's what's got to change. That's what's got to change. And one of the things is we're just leaving people out there for so long. So I don't think it was more uh, that, that it was much so much a, a feeling of privilege as it was you know, leading edge, that's a high operational tempo environment, has been for a long time. It's a great way for a young officer, uh, SWO, to pick a ship at service assignment uh, and go out to Westpac and get qualified because the op tempo is so high. What a lot of people don't remember is how high the op tempo was for the Navy and the Air Force before 9-11. After 9-11, we went to war, we focused on the op tempo in the Marine Corps uh, and the Army because it was severe. But we didn't down, you know, we, we didn't turn down the op tempo for the Navy uh, and the uh, Air Force. Uh, and thus, we really started to wear ships out and we wore people out. And I think that was, and, and then particularly when you're quote unquote deployed overseas, there's a can-do aspect of this. And can-do has its limits. It's a terrific way to think about things but you can't do it on, you can't do, can do under all circumstances. And it really is the charge of the leaders, the officer corps, whether you're a division officer, department head, or a commanding officer say enough's enough. I, I've got to give my people a break. We're just, we're straining them. We're, we're wearing them out. And, and in those circumstances, you really start to create situations that become very dangerous. And that became 
the core issue for the for the COs uh, of those two ships, which resulted in those you know tragic deaths and the need to be able to. You, you, we, we overuse this, but no kidding, you need to be able to tell your boss. You need to be able to speak truth to power. Hey, enough's enough. You know we've got to take a break here, or we can't do this, or we should do it this way, whatever the right thing is. And that's a responsibility of every leader, whether it's a J.O. on his or her first tour or or whether it's a, you know, a flag officer at the one, two, three or four star level. Um, Lacking that, that culture will continue to grab you, if you will, until we result, we we have the kind of results that we've had. Didn't we see someone try to speak truth to power and, uh, and it didn't work out for him? Exactly. And what's ironic, and this doesn't get focused much on with respect to Captain Crozier, is, you know, Crozier was the CEO of the Blue Ridge out in the Western Pacific, home port in Yakuska, 7th Fleet flagship, when those collisions occur. So while he wasn't involved, he was right there for all of that. And I think that's what he was trying to do. I think his downfall was how he executed that. I think he was trying to take care of the troops, but there was a lot we didn't know you know, in the moment, if you will, about what was going on in that ship. Uh, and the CNO, and I know him well, you know, learned a lot more after the fact about the degree, the, the things that were wrong on the ship. Uh, and the CNO answered the question, which was, had you known what you know now, when he made the decision or the recommendation to not reinstate him, would you have relieved him? And the CNO said yes uh, at the time. The other thing is, uh, you know, and this is in Crozier's defense to some degree, is this was at the beginning of COVID-19, and there were an awful lot of unknowns across the board. What Captain Crozier didn't know was all the forces that were moving above him, if you will, to try to help him out. Uh, and, uh, And so it was a very, very tough situation and a very visible one. It's at least my own experience is, it's oftentimes very difficult to get all of this right if it is so public and the barrage of press and questions and focus is so intense that you almost don't, you almost don't have time to sort out the facts. Just one other comment. I think the Navy needed to grab the whole TR thing early uh, and generate a good solution for the troops on the ship, for the sailors on the ship, as well as for the, the president and the administration. And that didn't happen. And into that vacuum runs the civilian leadership, which just made it worse. And it just kept going, you know, one chapter after another, worse, uh, you know, one one bad outcome after another. And I think, you know, Captain Crozier, despite his desire to make sure his troops were okay, he got caught in the middle of that. Uh, And he's responsible. You know, as a CO, you're responsible and accountable for all of what happens, uh, even sometimes that which you can't control. Let me ask you to wind it back, and I hate to say it this way, Admiral, but wind it back 50 years. You're a JG on the deck of whatever ship you may well have been on. You've got the deck, and the captain walks on, and the captain starts giving you conflicting orders. What do you do? Not conflicting orders, but you know maybe the captain doesn't have the situational awareness that you have because you've been you know, the officer of the deck for a while. How do you do that? So as a longstanding... Uh uh, rule, if you will, on, on going to sea. If you're the officer of the deck, you're Lieutenant J.G. Mullen, and I've got the deck. And actually, 
this was the case. I was we were going to Yankee Station off Vietnam in the in the Vietnam War. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're following the guidance that, you know, the captain has given you, uh, and, uh, and the captain shows up on the bridge and gives you countermands your order to the helm or to the, uh, to the engine order telegraph or whatever the case might be, but certainly in control of the ship, uh, the response is ingrained in you. And you understand at this point, uh, to announce loud and clear, the captain has the con so that you give him control of the ship and then he does he or she does what he or she wants with the ship that's what you do in that kind of situation certainly even doing that you should try to fill in uh the the blanks if you will or improve the co's uh, situational awareness uh, but the standard procedure is when the captain gives an order even though he doesn't have the con your next statement is the cap this is lieutenant jg mullen the captain has the con, and that also gets recorded, you know, in the logbook for uh, literally for not, not just posterity, but for accountability. Should that be required to be reviewed? Okay, now I'll, I'll be honest with you, Admiral. I'm a Marine. Now I remember my naval science all those years ago, but if the captain has the con, you're still the OOD. Correct. Correct. And so what you what you need to do, and this is. This is the case, actually, whether it's the captain has the con or you're the OD and uh, another, let's say, an ensign has the con. Uh, there's a combination of, uh, uh, in, a, in a tough situation, of both, you know, really narrow focus on what's going on right in front of you. And when that happens, somebody else needs to back up a little bit and look at the bigger picture. So in that case... When the captain gets focused and he's, you know, very focused, let's say in the uh, the collision with McCain, so effectively the captain took the con there. Then the OD needs to back up a little bit and and, and sort of expand uh, his or her vision and view to see what else is going on that the captain may be losing situational awareness of, you know, as he focuses so heavily on uh, on the moment and exactly what's going on right in front of him. I love that idea. Uh, and, and the important thing I think I'm hearing you say is that that JG is still responsible. It's still in the game. And not only to the ship, but to the Naval Service, he or she still has those responsibilities. Let me, let me ask you this then. It kind of goes back to the first question. What are those responsibilities? What, what do you see a junior officer being able to do today to make sure that his her naval service is successful going forward because we are in a rebuild, I think. One of the thoughts with respect to this, and this is true, uh, actually, whether we're rebuilding or whether we're done rebuilding, uh, as I think you know, Michael, I teach uh, a class in leadership to uh, members of the class of 21. I taught last year to the members of class of 20. And uh, and one of my messages to them, and this is longstanding, not just recent, is you need to be the best that you can be. You need to be professionally competent. As you graduate from the Naval Academy uh, in your first tour, you need to get qualified uh, as, as well and proficiently and in as timely a fashion as possible. That qualification then allows you to to become a much more capable member of the quote unquote team, uh, whether actually, whether that's, you know, in the Marine Corps or uh, in the Navy, uh, from my perspective. So that's absolutely critical. You need to, 
That's one. Two, you need to uphold the standards. Uh, graduating midshipmen are imbued with duty, uh, with uh, courage, honor, and, and commitment. And the values that are associated with that, the, the idea of integrity, uh, the idea of being responsible for your own behavior, uh, really the idea that you don't take the uniform off even when you have it off. Uh, your standards of behavior uh, are, are uh, absolutely, you know, so critical. One of the uh, one of the real highlights uh, of being back and teaching at the Naval Academy, having been through one year of it, you know, I took away from those 13 firsties out of the class of 20 that their level of training, their level of understanding, their leaders, their exposure to leadership requirements, uh, even though it's compressed, which means, uh, you know, that you get some of it each year in the four years you're at uh, the Naval Academy, that the, the, the exposure and experience, the, the exposure was broad. It wasn't very deep because we don't have the time. But I was really encouraged by what these 13 mids out of the class of 20 understood about leadership, the questions they would ask about leadership as they're ready for the fleet. Seemingly, from my perspective, questions and understanding, questions they were asking and understanding they had that I didn't have until I was graduated, you know, maybe 10 years, you know, I was 10 years out from graduation. So I was pretty encouraged. I'm very encouraged by the curriculum, the experience, the leadership experience that's going on at the Naval Academy. One other thing I'd like to address on expectations for junior officers, if I can, Michael, and it and it doesn't it doesn't come from the Naval Academy. It comes from West Point, but uh, you know I learned a long time ago that you can learn lessons from from lots of uh, places other than where you are and institutions. And and I know that these are two different and in many ways rival institutions. Uh, for two different services, but there are an awful lot of similarities. And I thought these young graduates, in this time of pretty significant strife in the country, pretty significant focus uh, with respect to racial unrest, uh, uh, which which brings me back to when I was a midshipman, and, and we went through a lot of this in the 60s, but we haven't gone far enough. And the six or seven or eight graduates from West Point uh, out of the classes of uh, 18 and 19, uh, uh, including the woman who was the first uh, uh, female, first captain at West Point, who also happens to be an African-American gal and a Rhodes Scholar, put together a 40-page letter uh, to the chief of staff of the Army, to the secretary of the Army, to the superintendent at West Point about racism at West Point. And they didn't do it. They did it. And it's very clear when you read it, and I'd commend it to anybody. You can pull it down off the Internet. Very clear. One, we love this institution. Two, there is racism here. Three, this is how it is It is represented. And four, here's what you need to do about it. Uh, we're, we're at a time now where in the, in the racial issue world, we're ha we have to have incredibly uncomfortable conversations. That's what Admiral Zumwalt, when he was a CNO in the 70s, put all of us through as we were coming out of the literally out of the dark ages with respect to race in the in the Navy at the time, including race riots on a lot of our ships. We, we had a lot of really uncomfortable conversations and I was in them and I was not happy that I was in them. I didn't understand. I was too young. Those conversations need to take place. This letter, this responsible letter that these recent graduates of West Point put together as young officers, to some degree risking their careers to get it out there was an extraordinary, uh, uh, extraordinary document 
and an extraordinary, a courageous step in the right direction to help heal the institution that they cared about an awful lot. One of the things that I think is very powerful about that letter, by the way, because I've looked at it, I've read the letter, is it was actually signed. Yeah. They signed their names. Yeah. 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 I, I think, uh, and it's a, it's also an unwritten rule in Washington, you know, at a very, at the very, at, at a senior level, you know, if you want to make sure something's going to happen, put your name on it. Uh, at least it ha- has a possibility of it. Sign, don't just, don't just give the guidance, if you will, verbally per se, although there's always plenty of that. But I know they, they, I thought that they were ter- tremendously courageous young men and women that signed their names to that. Uh, and I took it, uh, as, as I said, I took it in great part because they cared a lot about the institution, but they also lived it. And it's, it's very informative. And this goes back to what do I do as a JO? As a JO, you're never going to be closer as an ensign or a second lieutenant. You're never going to be closer to the troops than you are in that tour. Uh, physically, you're out with them. Uh, you need to learn who they are, what makes them tick, how you bring them together as a team. And that issue of being on the deck plates, uh, the more senior you become, pay grade by pay grade, job by job, the more difficult it is to know what's actually going on. And imagine, you know, just for for the point of discussion, if you're a four star like myself, trying to grew up on the deck plates, who who learned, you know, with the troops, trying to know what's going on at that level when the system, by and large, would like to keep you away. That's a real leadership challenge. So the opportunity for a young junior officer these days uh, to to know what's going on and then to do something about it, uh, if you will, uh, relay that up the chain of command and get the right thing done for the individual, for your troops and for your for your ship or for your uh, battalion uh, or your squadron, whatever it is, it is truly extraordinary. And we depend on JOs to do that. Admiral. Fantastic conversation. If I can summarize it just for a second, you're talking about the fact that JOs need to have skin in the game and you've got to have the guts to speak truth to power. Frankly, I think senior senior officers want to hear your input and they deserve hearing your input. You've got to be strong enough to actually speak it. I, uh, yes, I, but I'd, I'd be a little a little more careful with the senior officers want to hear it. Even senior officers who say they want to hear it. That's something uh, worth testing because I've been around senior officers who say they want to hear it and they really don't. Uh, so making sure, I mean, you, you still need to say it in, in my view. I just think you shouldn't be completely surprised if their reaction uh, is such that uh um, they actually don't do anything with the information that you have. Uh, and then you get put in a pretty significant dilemma as a young officer. Where do I go from here? Particularly if it involves the potential for, uh, you know, uh, l- losing life. Going to sea is a dangerous business. So everything you're doing uh, is, is very much tied to that. That gets back to you really got to know your business so that when you see something that is out of line or wrong, and you speak to it up to your chain, uh, and something happens in one case or something doesn't happen in another case, what do you do then if it doesn't happen? And these lives are at stake. And at some point in time, uh, 
Uh, and actually, I do talk about this in the leadership class. At some point in time, you know, is it worth, you know, you may have to sacrifice your career, even as, as nation as it is, to do the right thing to make sure you take care of the troops. But you're going to know, I think, pretty quickly based on execution, where you're speaking to how something is going to be handled, what the procedures are, uh, what we're, what, you know, what the safety requirements are that we are not meeting. Maybe that's what I'm bringing up, uh, and the CEO is just going to push through. You're going to see pretty quickly whether you, you know, whether you had an impact or not. Then the tough question is, okay, what do I do now? Uh, particularly if you're on a ship and you're talking to the CEO. There isn't like it isn't like there's anybody else to talk to. Typically on a ship, that's it. So so then, what's the next step? Uh, now I, I'm not saying this happens all the time, but it does it does happen, uh, and it's not just on ships. It happens in 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 the Navy and the Marine Corps, but it also happens in you know civilian organizations as well. And this then gets into making sure you're taking care of yourself, making sure you're taking care of your troops, but also there's an institutional requirement we all have to make sure the institution is being well cared for. Uh, and if it's your belief that's not the case, you're almost obligated to take steps to do everything you can to make sure that's right. So I mentioned, you know, the tailhook scandal in the early 90s. And you know, not several years later, we had a CNO who committed suicide. In that time frame, there was this huge cheating scandal at the Naval Academy. Uh, and it's my view, and I've always tried to pay attention to what's going on at the Naval Academy. You know, we, we were in jeopardy of losing the Naval Academy back then. Uh, and so it wasn't about however many midshipmen were put up for cheating. It was about the institution of the Naval Academy. It, when when Borda killed himself, from my perspective, it was about the institution, as sad as that was, it was about the institution of the Navy, which is so precious that now is in jeopardy. And oftentimes, particularly when we're young, and I was this way as well, I'm not thinking about the institution. I'm thinking about myself. I'm thinking about my responsibility. Sometimes I'm unable to relate my responsibility to the health of the institution, but it is directly tied at every single level with every single junior officer. Admiral, this is a great conversation. I appreciate uh, your perspective on the responsibilities of a junior officer to this institution, to themselves, to their sailors and Marines. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks, Michael. Good to be with you. You've been listening to The Flag Brief, a series of conversations with senior officers and civilian officials. Thanks for listening. You can find more of our podcasts from the Stockdale Center at radiostockdale.com.